Hi, and welcome to this audio edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. On this program, we discuss polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism from a biblical Christian perspective. We talk about the history of polygamy, its modern-day fruit, share stories from people who have escaped polygamy, and talk about current events relating to polygamy. You can learn more about the video edition of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. And now, here's Doris. Welcome to our show tonight. I am Doris Hansen. I'm your host for the program. And we are grateful that you have chosen to share some of your evening with us tonight. We do have a, an interesting and unique interview that will shed some historical truth on a well-known, a very well-known early Mormon polygamous couple. But first, I would like to remind our viewers in the Brigham City area that I've been invited to talk at the Main Street Church in Brigham City uh, this coming Sunday morning on February 26th. And I will also be speaking at the Mountain View Bible Church in Leverkin. Um, on Sunday morning of March 11th. I'd love to meet viewers in those areas who would like to come by and visit with us during those times. And also, especially for the Leverkin and Hurricane and St. George area, if there are any viewers down there who have come out of a polygamy group and would like to come and share your story with me, I'd love to talk with you about it. And you can email us at tv at aboutpolygamy.com and uh, we can make the arrangements or you can call toll free at 877-425-9993. Also, our Life After Polygamy discussion group meets again uh, this coming Monday at uh, 6.30. That will be February 27th at 6.30 p.m. And again, we invite anybody whose life has been touched by or impacted by polygamy in any way to come and share or just to come and listen or reach out and, and uh, maybe help someone through a difficult time. And of course, you can email Email us for details, uh, tv at aboutpolygamy.com. You know, while Orson Pratt, one of the early Mormon apostles, uh, was away on a mission for his beloved Mormon church and his beloved prophet Joseph Smith, his wife, Sarah Pratt, was approached while he was gone by Joseph Smith and propositioned to become one of his secret plural wives, and she flat out refused his advances. Joseph Smith threatened Sarah Pratt not to tell anyone about his proposal, and if she did, he would ruin her character. But she did tell her husband when he returned, and boy, did the sparks fly. Well, tonight we're going to tell the story of Sarah and Orson Pratt, his rejection of Joseph Smith and polygamy, and after that incident with his wife, and then how he later was reinstated in the church and then embraced polygamy, and even becoming um, an advocate at large for polygamy in the early Mormon church. In the past, we have presented a characterization of early Mormon polygamist wives, where Dorothy Catlin assumes the character. I interview, and she answers my questions straight from historical documentation. Tonight, we will interview Dorothy's characterization of Sarah Pratt, whose story of her experiences is so interesting and heartbreaking that you will be forced to wonder how anyone can, uh, with, with a spark of love in his heart, could possibly ever put another human being through the pain that she and other polygamist women were forced to endure. So I would like to welcome and introduce Sarah Pratt, as characterized by Dorothy Catlin. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you Thank for you. coming. It's good to be here again. 
<laughs> yes, the last one was Lucette. No, Zena Huntington. No, Zena Huntington. Zena Huntington. We two shows. Two, we had two interviews with Zena. Two shows on that one. Well, as we interview Sarah Pratt, you're going to uh, to, to characterize her and use words that were that, that you've done a lot of research on her mm -hmm. and and really gotten the grip of what she was about and use many of her own words. Mm -hmm, yeah. And we find out during the interview that Sarah Pratt was good with the needle. Mm-hmm. And I would like to say that so is she good with the needle because she made her, her her costume there with her own hands. So it fits good with the character. But we got a lot to cover, so mm -hmm. we better get moving on this so that we can get through it all. So first of all, why don't you just tell us about your your early years, how you met your husband, and how and when you became a Mormon. All right. I was born in, in Henderson, New York in 1817. Uh, I was the oldest daughter of 12 children. It was a big family. And when I was 18, uh, old Mormon missionaries came to our area. And uh, I can't rightly say now which came first, uh, believing that message or falling in love with Orson Pratt. He was intensely committed to his message, and he had these blue eyes. <laughs> Uh, and so in 1835, I was baptized into the church along with some other members of my family. Mm -hmm. And then he moved on to preach elsewhere. But we wrote, and over the next year or so, that relationship grew. And we were married July 4th, 1836. I think we have a picture of oh. young Orson to show. Mm -hmm. Oh, there he is. Yep. Yeah, he looks a lot better then than he did a few years later. Huh? Oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> When you said that your husband was intensely committed to Mormonism, how was that displayed mm -hmm. in your marriage? Oh, he was. He Only three days after we were married, he returned to his missionary travels, and I stayed with my family. Uh, he did come back to see me several times over the next couple of months, though, and in October, we finally moved into our own dollar-a-month apartment in Kirtland, Ohio, where he uh, began to trade in, in stoves and ironware. But uh, the economic situation in Kirtland was just terrible because Joseph Smith's bank had failed. And so we had, we had very few financial resources. Our, uh, our first son, Orson Jr., was born there. But right after that, we moved back to my parents' place in New York where Orson became a laborer. Uh, we just couldn't make ends meet. Uh, then when the baby was only three months old, Orson left to go back to labor in the vineyard. Oh my so over the next winter, he was away very often on short local missions. Let's see, in the next spring, oh, we moved to New York City, but we had just gotten settled there when the call came that we must move to, uh, to far west Missouri to prepare for a great mission. So Orson, of course, had to go. And even though I was, I was pregnant with our second child at the time, we headed west. Mm -hmm. And we only made it as far as St. Louis because the river was frozen and we couldn't go any farther. And uh, I couldn't go on in my condition anyway. So our baby Lydia was born there in December of 1838. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Finally, the next <laughs> spring, we were able to move on up the river and we spent a couple of months sharing a little log cabin with Wilford Woodruff's family. And then we moved across the river into, into Nauvoo, Nauvoo later on. Were the living conditions any better for you in Nauvoo? Not at all. We had at first a 14 by 16 foot shanty. It wasn't even finished. Uh, it, was, it was not very pleasant. And that river bottom land was so swampy, there were constant epidemics. I think we have a picture of, of old Nauvoo that shows kind of how, how muddy it was. There were these epidemics of cholera and malaria mm -hmm. and typhoid and our our little Lydia died mm. uh, shortly after we moved there. She was only 18 months oh old, and we, 
we buried her across the river in Montrose. Only 11 days later, Orson left uh, for Europe, and my father died just after that, a few weeks later. I had, I had wanted to go with Orson as far as New York to see my father again before he died, uh -huh. but our little Lydia had just gone, and uh, Orson Jr. was only three, and church leaders had emphasized that we must gather to Nauvoo, so I, I simply couldn't go. Uh, Orson was away for months, and I grieved so alone. You, she grieved by herself. Did he live provision for you to live on while he was away? Not much. <laughs> they didn't in those days, no. did they? Before he'd gone, he had made arrangements with Joseph for us to receive provisions from the tithing house, but I will tell you shortly what became of that. <laughs> What about financial contribution to your home? Were you, were you forced to find income from some other way? Mm -hmm. There was very little money then in circulation, and people were obliged to be content just to earn what would keep body and soul together. I was a good hand with a needle, as you said, and so I took in as much sewing as I could get. Uh, the Prophet Joseph used to hire me for his own family's sewing needs, and that's how I came to make the acquaintance of John C. Bennett. John Bennett, okay. We have a picture of Bennett, too. Uh -huh. I think we could, we could put that up. He was a newcomer to our religion, but he grew to be very close to Joseph in a very short period of time. And Joseph even appointed him assistant president of the church for a little while. He boarded at the Smith home. They were very, very close. And our friend William Law used to say that Bennett was more in the secret confidence of Joseph than perhaps any other man in the city. And I think we're going to find out why a little bit later, but he actually uh, played a huge part in some of the events of your immediate future. How did you meet him? Well, Joseph brought him to my house in the fall of 1840 saying that Ben had wanted some sewing done, and I was just the person to do it for him. So I was a little flattered and very glad of the income mm -hmm. uh, because Bennett brought me a great deal of work to do. And I was boarding for a while with a couple named Goddard because Orson was away and we had no home of our own yet. Uh, and they come into the story later on. Yes, they do. <laughs> very important part. But that's where my life began to get very complicated because Bennett knew that Joseph had plans for me. Bennett, uh, Joseph had also told him that, that he wanted me for one of his spiritual wives mm -hmm. and that the Lord had given me to him as a special favor for his faithfulness. Oh my goodness, a married woman. Were you aware of Joseph Smith's eye on you for a plural wife and were you yet aware of the plural wife system in the Mormon church leadership? Oh, you know, rumors were rampant in Nauvoo at that time about spiritual wives, and I hadn't wanted to believe the gossip that I'd heard. Spiritual wives? Really? What is that? Uh, I did not believe that Joseph could be such a corrupt man until it happened to me. Uh, I'd even heard that he'd told some of the women, God does not care if we have a good time, as long as others do not know about it. Mm. Oh, that's nice. So... Are you saying that Joseph Smith was actually, the Mormon prophet was actually a wolf in sheep's clothing? Uh, well, if any woman like me opposed his wishes, he used to say, be silent or I will ruin your character. My character must be sustained in the interest of the church. And mm -hmm. that's a nice picture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a wolf in sheep's clothing, yes. 
Looking back on it now, I believe that he did not think of a marriage or a sealing ceremony for a number of years. Uh, he only introduced a marriage ceremony when he found that there were certain women he couldn't get without one. Louisa Beeman was mm -hmm. the first case of that kind, I believe. Yeah, and she was dressed like a man, they got married in the park. Mm -hmm. um, actually, it was a secret uh, practice of polygamy that brought about the adoption of the Masonic secret endowments and the secret uh, cer ceremonies for the polygamous unions. And that's the only reason they did come about. Before polygamy entered the picture, there was no such rituals for any sealing marriage ceremony. So tell us what happened next. Well, one winter day in 1841, Joseph and Bennett came to my house, and by this time we had our own brick house. We do have a picture of that. It's a wonderful picture of the, the brick house we had in Nauvoo, unless, of course, they can't find it. <laughs> Not very long into that visit, Joseph said to me, Sister Pratt, the Lord has given you to me as one of my spiritual wives. I have the blessings of Jacob granted to me, and as God granted the holy men of old, and I have long looked on you with favor and earnest desire. Oh, mercy. I hope you will not repulse or deny me. I could hardly believe my ears. I was horrified. I couldn't believe that he would call on me to break the marriage covenant with my lawful husband. I told him I cared nothing for the blessings of Jacob. I would believe no such revelations, neither would I consent under any circumstances. I had one good husband, and that was enough for me. Good answer. Your refusal should have ended the matter with Joseph Smith, did it? It certainly did not. No. On a later visit, I had to tell him, Joseph, if you ever attempt anything of this kind with me again, I will make a full disclosure to Mr. Pratt. You can depend on it. Was Orson was away at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so your, redirect, your rejection of Joseph Smith and your threat to tell your husband, mm -hmm. uh, did that frighten Joseph Smith? What was his reaction? Uh, I, I, he, he was shocked. And he was angry, and he pleaded with me not to expose him. I, he just didn't encounter rejection very often. And I don't know why I agreed to it, but I told him that I would not expose him unless strong circumstances should require it. That was when he threatened the first time to ruin my reputation if I told. And after he'd made those proposals to me, I was so enraged that I refused to accept any help from the tithing house or the bishop, and I depended solely on my sewing for my income. Did you write to your husband and tell him about this incident? I probably should have. <laughs> I should have, but I didn't. I did go to my friend Mrs. Harris, and I think you've interviewed her here too as well. And to my utter astonishment, she laughed aloud and she said, Oh, you're so foolish. I am his mistress these four years. Well, we did interview Mrs. Harris. Um, and I think it's interesting when we went through that show that Mrs. Harris referred to herself as his mistress. She did. Not as a celestial wife or a polygamous wife, but as his mistress, which is exactly what she was. She did. You know, Lucinda was different from the rest of us as, yeah. I, as I think back on it now. <laughs> she, she definitely was. So what happened? Did Joseph Smith's proposition get forgiven and forgotten? Did things get better or did they get worse? Oh, they got worse. 
they got worse. About a year later, after Orson had returned home from England, uh, Joseph and Bennett paid me a visit, and during that visit, Joseph stealthily approached me and kissed me. I was so enraged, I made such a commotion that our neighbor across the street, Mary Eddie Smith, heard it. Whoa. I, I ordered him out of my house, and he used abuse and obscene language back at me, uh, declaring that he'd found Bennett and me in bed together. <laughs> So he was he was already starting to ruin your <laughs> reputation that he had uh, previously threatened to do. I mean, he's acting like a scoundrel here, isn't he? Oh, well, he did. When Joseph found that he could not seal my lips, he sent word to me that he would work my salvation if I kept silent. Well, I wrote back to him that I would talk as much as I pleased <laughs> and as much as I knew to be the truth. And as for my own salvation, I would take care of that myself. Good for you. That was courageous. <laughs> Had you told your husband yet? Well, I'd been afraid to tell Orson. Uh, I didn't want him to know the true story of my sufferings or all my privations and the insults that I had endured because I knew that Joseph would just circumvent it. He would just meet it with that infallible rebuff, thus saith the Lord. Yes, yes. So I did fear Orson, Orson, excuse me, Orson would believe him over me. But when I finally did tell Orson the whole story, he did believe me. That must have been a huge yeah. relief for you. What, what, did, what did Orson, what was his reaction? Oh, he confronted Joseph. And Joseph at first said he didn't want to kiss me, but Bennett had made him do it. Now how can one <laughs> man make another man kiss another man's and wife? And then he accused me of having <laughs> Bennett as my lover. Oh, well, my Orson. husband called the prophet a liar to his face, an infamous liar. And then there was real trouble. You can only imagine. The next few months were filled with accusations and denials, the rumors flew about polygamy and spiritual wifery, and not just Joseph's. Other leaders of the church were beginning to take secret plural wives themselves uh, without Joseph's blessing, and that caused Joseph's secret church-sanctioned marriages to be in danger of public exposure. Mm -hmm. Well, Joseph Smith propositioned you a married, wo a married woman. <laughs> yes. You refused him. There must have been other married women that he had propositioned. Now, we talked about Mrs. Harris earlier, but I can't believe that he just stopped with those two. Do you oh, know of any? Oh, yes. Oh, there were several others. We, we mentioned Mrs. Harris, mm -hmm. but I know that, uh, that Zena... Jacob Huntington, Huntington and her sister Presendia were also were two more, uh, and they were living with their lawful husbands at the time that they were married. Pro that Joseph, Joseph propositioned them uh, yes. and married and they them while they were the, living the with those husbands. Living with their husbands, and there were others, although I didn't know it at the time. We we learned that later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, there were eleven total, but you said no. Um, and you also told on him, mm -hmm. despite the threats that he made to you. Were there others who reacted like you did? Mm -hmm. There were. That told him no. Uh, there were. I wasn't the only one who spoke out. Martha Brotherton had gone to St. Louis and told her story in the newspaper there. But any of us who dared to speak out were publicly slandered. Poor Nancy Rigdon was called notorious in this city, in the newspaper, and little better than a public prostitute. And I refused to quote for you what they called me. Oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> well, I wonder why Joseph Smith wasn't excommunicated. Well, that's a really, that's a very good question. I, the Nauvoo High Council conducted an investigation, but polygamy wasn't being acknowledged 
publicly, and Dr. Bennett became the scapegoat to protect Joseph and the church. Mm -hmm. Charges were brought against him and a few others, and that deflected attention from Joseph for a little while. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you about Catherine Fuller Warren. She was charged with unchaste and unvirtuous conduct with John C. Bennett, but then she shocked everybody by confessing to such conduct with many others, mm. including the prophet's own younger brother, Apostle William Smith. My goodness. I, here's what she testified. I wrote this down so I could read it to you. She said, these men taught that the doctrine was right to have free intercourse with women and that the heads of the church also taught and practiced it, which caused her to be led away thinking it to be right. So she did it. And you know what? This information is in the minutes of the High Council mm -hmm. of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, May 24th, 1842, and also in the Nauvoo Neighbor, mm -hmm. May 1840 edition. You didn't make this up. It's in the church history documentation. It I, actually happened. I didn't make any of this up. It's all on <laughs> it's record. It's all there. It's all there. And we'll do a bibliography, too, after the show of where she's getting this information. It, it's all on record. Mm -hmm. Then it was excommunicated, but Joseph's brother William was forgiven and very conveniently sent off on a mission to Pennsylvania. Oh, my goodness. How, how did John Bennett take this treatment? <laughs> Well, he stayed around Nauvoo for a while, but eventually he left, saying he feared for his life. And then he wrote letters to the Sangamo Journal, promising an expose of Mormonism, because he had been in the inside circle for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And he included in those letters details about Joseph's proposals to me, and he urged me in print to come forward and confirm the story. Wow. Okay, back to what's going on here with your situation. How did your husband, how did Orson handle all this that was happening? Oh, poor Orson. He was so overwhelmed. Uh, my husband was a good and a pious man, and he was a true believer in Mormonism. And he was devotedly attached to Joseph Smith as the spiritual leader of the church. He believed him to be a pure man and a prophet of the Lord, and his faith was severely shaken. Mm. When he'd confronted Joseph Smith, the prophet had told him that if he did believe his wife and follow her, he would go to hell. Boy, don't they love to make that threat. That certainly put hip on, Orson on the spot. So did, did it continue his resolve to support you and to believe you in all this mm -hmm. rumor? And he did. He seemed to support me, but he was deeply troubled, and he actually disappeared for a time. It had been Orson's habit to go off by himself when he was in a turmoil, and this time he had actually left a note that seemed to threaten suicide. Wow. He was finally found about five miles downriver just sitting on a rock on the bank, uh, and the official church line was that his mind temporarily gave way due to my lying to him. Oh, it's your fault. <laughs> but he did continue to stand by me at that point. Well, that would have placed Joseph Smith in a rather uncomfortable mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. I doubt that he would allow Orson Pratt to continue his allegiance to you and his opposition to him. Oh, you're right. The church leaders began to apply tremendous pressure to Orson, and they gathered sworn statements from prominent Nauvoo citizens and published them in the paper, affirming Joseph Smith's high moral character. Uh, and they called Bennett a pimp and a file leader of such mean harlots as Martha H. Brotherton and her predecessors from Old Jezebel. That's oh. from the newspaper. <laughs> 
You know, it's amazing how this religion then and now, and even into the polygamy groups, will back a guilty man to the hilt, but they'll sh throw, they think nothing of throwing the women under the bus without a second thought. So did Joseph Smith continue to shred your character? Oh, he did. He went so far as to publish an extra sheet in the local press containing affidavits against my reputation and accusing me of having an affair with Bennett. Well, when this sheet was brought to me, I discovered, to my astonishment, the names of the Goddards, the people that I had boarded with for a time, and I went straight to their house to confront them. Well, Mr. Goddard left in a hurry out the back when he saw me coming, but I found Mrs. Goddard, and I said, what does it all mean? Well, she began to cry, and she said, it's not my fault. Hiram Smith came to our house with the affidavits all written out and forced us to sign them. He said, Joseph and the church must be saved. And she said, we saw that resistance was useless. They would have ruined us. So we signed the papers. Oh, my goodness. The church. The church. Oh, my goodness. It's just signed pe a piece of paper today that people believe that, and the RLDS is, mm -hmm. is, a, is the one that holds on to this too. They claim that Sarah Pratt lied about all this and they refuse to believe that Joseph Smith was a scoundrel and a polygamist. Mm -hmm. the, the RLDS still do not believe that Joseph Smith was a polygamist. Well, it's interesting that you should mention the RLDS because many years later I had an interview with Joseph Smith Jr. and I saw that he was not inclined to believe the truth about his father. And so I said to him in that interview, you pretend to have revelations from the Lord. Why don't you ask the Lord what kind of man your father really was? Well, you were. Oh. <laughs> Oh, by then. You let it all hang out, didn't you? <laughs> by then. But let's get back to the Goddards, because it was all blackmail and slander, the statements that they had signed regarding Forced me. to sign. Yes, forced to sign, because they would have been ruined. Uh, during that very time that they claimed that Bennett and I were in constant company, Orson was not traveling. He was at home with us. Uh, I was sick and pregnant with our daughter, Celestia, and Bennett was traveling on church business. And even if we had been having an affair, would we have flaunted it in front of people who were my husband's close friends? So none of the facts put together could make it possible that you were actually guilty of this no. at any rate. So even having the facts to prove you're innocent, they continued their attacks. Mm -hmm. They did. They did. The church leaders put tremendous pressure on Orson to choose between me and the church. Brigham wrote at this time that Orson's mind became so darkened by the influence and statements of his wife that he came out in rebellion against Joseph. And he wrote a letter to Orson's brother Parley saying, we will not let brother Orson go away from us. He's too good a man to have a woman destroy him. So you see, they blamed me for the yes, whole thing. Yes. The situation seemed to have reached the crisis stage. What happened? Well, Orson was excommunicated on August 20th of 1842 for insubordination because he continued to stand by me. And I was excommunicated that same day for adultery. Oh. Mm -hmm. Did you pack up your family and get out of town? <laughs> <laughs> well, many people thought we would. But in spite of everything, Orson had not renounced his Mormonism. He seemed to regard all this trouble with Joseph as personal, not mm -hmm. doctrinal. Hmm. Then a couple of months later, in January of 1843, Bennett wrote to us collaborating with the authorities in Missouri. He had been in contact with authorities, and they were attempting to have Joseph Smith extradited to face charges in the Boggs case. You know about that. 
so he wanted Orson to help him, and so he wrote to my husband asking for help, but Orson was too loyal to the church. He wasn't at all willing to hand the prophet over, and he showed the letter to Joseph. Oh, that must have thrilled him. <laughs> oh, Joseph was so delighted with Orson's loyalty that he immediately declared that Orson's excommunication had been invalid because he wasn't there when it happened. Now, where he was was in hiding because of the assault on Governor Boggs. So what about your excommunication? Well, no word about mine. But then he claimed again that even though I had lied about him, about Joseph, that he would not pressure Orson to break up our family. So about an hour later, we were both rebaptized by Joseph himself in the Mississippi River. Orson's position in the Quorum of Twelve was immediately restored to him, and he began telling people that Bennett was publishing lies. That must have been strange for Sarah to be baptized by <laughs> Joseph Smith. Did he? So Orson actually ended up choosing the church over you. How did. did how did John Bennett respond to he these did. events? <laughs> well, he published a book. <laughs> It's called The History of the Saints, uh -huh. or an expose of Joe Smith and Mormonism. Now, Bennett was angry at the way Joseph had turned on him, and he was rather an opportunist. Uh, if you've read the book, the writing is feisty and flamboyant, but I want you to know that the principal statements in John C. Bennett's book on Mormonism are true. Mm. Interesting. Did all this teach Joseph Smith a lesson mm. not to go propositioning other men's wives? Not really. <laughs> Not really. Later that spring, he made a similar offer to Jane Law, William Law's wife, mm -hmm. and you know how that turned out, mm -hmm. how William then published the only edition of the Nauvoo Expositor, mm -hmm. uh, the, what was going to be the first, but turned out to be the only, right. uh, exposing Joseph Smith's activities. William later wrote, uh, the great mistake of my life was my having anything to do with Mormonism. I feel it to be a deep disgrace and never speak of it when I can avoid it. Well, and and William Law was a good man. He mm -hmm. he had uh, didn't have any scoundrels in his background there. So you and your husband are back in the Mormon Church, and they are still practicing secret polygamy. Yes, definitely in secret. A couple of months after Joseph and his brother were killed, Sidney Rignett, Nancy's father, we referred to her earlier, mm -hmm. had published a letter exposing the polygamy that was still going on among the leaders of the church. But it was just a few weeks after that that Orson took his first plural wife, mm. Charlotte Bishop, who she was only 20. Must have broke your heart. Mm. So he accepted polygamy as an essential for salvation? He did. He told me that he believed it was his duty to take other women besides myself to wife. And at first he said that it would make no difference in his affection for me, but that would continue pure and single as it had ever been. But think of the horror of such an announcement. My part in it was to consent. Mm -hmm. And for my obedience to the law of Sarah, my reward was to be sealed to Orson for eternity later that day by wow. Brigham Young. Uh, I'd like to briefly, um, for the viewers who probably don't know what the Law of Sarah is, it, that she just mentioned, the Law of Sarah is in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, where the first wife is to agree mm -hmm. that her husband can take a plural wife, mm -hmm. and um, as they say that Sarah agreed to give Hagar to Abraham, and if the, the first wife doesn't agree for the husband to take a plural wife, then the husband can take the plural wife anyway because she should have agreed. 
So that's the law of Sarah. It only amounts to her consent. Right. (laughs) (laughs) There was another reward for me the next month when I was, we were both voted into the endowment council. Oh, what's that? What's the endowment council? It was a secret organization within the church. Secrets abound, didn't they? But its primary purpose was to teach select men and women how to achieve full salvation with God. But it also served to test members' ability to keep the secret of plural marriage. Because, as we said, it still wasn't practiced openly. It Mm -hmm. wasn't even acknowledged publicly. And the very day I was inducted into this group, I participated in another sealing of Orson to another wife, uh, Charlotte's 18-year-old sister, Adelia. Another wife soon followed, Marianne Merrill. She was a little older. She was 25. Uh, But we were so poor, and Orson was away so much, that very shortly Charlotte left and married another man, and they moved to Missouri. Good for her. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have special privileges as part of that council? Oh, yes and no. (laughs) Even though we were members of this inner circle, it didn't keep us from being thrown out of the temple only three days after we had been sealed there. You get into all kinds of trouble, don't you, Sarah? Why were you thrown out of the temple? It happened this way. It was very interesting. Orson's brother Parley had been secretly sealed to a woman named Belinda Martin who was living in his home. And Belinda had recently given birth to a baby boy. Apparently Parley's wife, my sister-in-law, didn't know about the sealing or that her husband had been the father of the baby. Hmm. But I knew. Well, that day, right there in the temple, Parley accused me of influencing his wife against him and of ruining and breaking up his family, as well as being an apostate and of speaking against the heads of the church and against him. Orson fiercely defended me, but we were both thrown out of the temple right then and there. (laughs) So Orson defended you. Good for him. He did, but by the next day he regretted it. Why? Did it cause him more problems to do that? Let me read you part of a letter he wrote to the church that very day. Here's the letter. After I learned that it was my duty to stand and hear my family abused in the highest degree without the least provocation, and yet not open my mouth in her defense, I immediately confessed my fault to the council. Now, brethren, I stand ready and willing to make any further confessions to the council necessary to my restoration from banishment to the enjoyment of your meetings, which you and your wisdom may dictate. And I frankly and freely confess the thing pointed out by the president as being wrong, namely the opening of my mouth. Mm, The opening of your mouth. Mormon culture has always been keep your mouth shut mm-hmm. it, and it's today in the polygamy groups especially freedom of speech is just forbidden mm-hmm. don't have a thought or a word of your own mm-hmm. sad and that's how i learned that the enjoyment of their meetings was more important to my husband than defending me against their false accusations and that day because he again <coughs> chose them over me we were both initiated into the fullness of the priesthood which was a, a second anointing as sometimes it was called having your calling and election made sure mm-hmm. or higher blessings yeah. a second endowment yeah. it went by a lot of different names it was very very secret it wasn't written down or spoken about yeah yeah but after all this waffling by the church and the manipulation and the control of your husband Surely you started to have some doubts about the church? The Mm -hmm. church? Mm -hmm. I can't say exactly when it happened, but about this time, I stopped believing in the doctrines of Mormonism. 
but I still loved Orson, and it was the only life I knew. Mm -hmm. By the time we left Nauvoo that next winter, he'd added another wife, Sarah Louise Chandler. So now we were four wives. You remember that uh -huh. Charlotte had left us. Mm -hmm. We were so poor that our best meal was frozen turnips and dried buckwheat cakes. Ooh, that sounds awful. <laughs> so you left Nauvoo, where did you go? We did, but before we moved west, uh, Orson was appointed to preside over the European mission, and so he took me and our children along with him to Europe. The rest of the wives he left in care of my brother, Orson. I think actually we have a portrait that was painted now of, of us when we were living there in England. Uh, two years later, Orson left me there, and he returned to the States to see his other wives, and he wouldn't let me come. Uh, here's part of the letter I wrote to a friend during that time. Those were difficult years. I wrote, Mr. Pratt left on the 9th, on the 9th of March for the Bluffs. He'll return in June or July. Perhaps you may think this is a great trial for me, but I can assure you that it is no more of a trial than if he were gone on other business. For I've long since made up my mind that it is no use to fret about those who do not fret about me. I'm blessed with having children. But could I raise them, I would feel that I was more blessed. But the Lord has suffered four of my little ones to be taken in infancy. For what reason, I cannot tell. He knows. Now, Orson finally came back to take us home about five months later, but we lost our youngest, our newest young one, Marintha Althera, on the sea voyage back. She oh was only 15 months old. And we brought her little body back with us and buried her in Jackson County, Missouri. Wow. We also brought back with us a young English convert named Marion Ross, whom Orson married as soon as we arrived in Salt Lake. So he's increasing his harem. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine the pain that you suffered through all this. She makes five children that have died, and Orson mm -hmm. is taking his fifth plural wife. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to take a break right now, um, and we'll we open up the telephone lines if someone wants to, to join in this. We do have a little bit more of her story to tell. But uh, right now we will open the phone lines. The number is 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820, and we do have our message to share. You are watching Polygamy, What Love Is This? Broadcasting live from Salt Lake City, Utah. This program is the broadcast outreach of A Shield and Refuge Ministry. Shield and Refuge is a point of first contact for Mormon fundamentalists who question the doctrines of the religion or who are actively seeking for an opportunity to escape the polygamist lifestyle. Examining the claims of fundamentalist doctrine against the backdrop of biblical truth is central to our efforts. We invite you to contact us. Call toll-free at 877-425-9993 or email us at TV at aboutpolygamy.com. You are welcome to join us in our monthly support group, Life After Polygamy, where you can meet others like yourself who are searching for answers about polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism. We meet monthly in the Salt Lake City area. For more details about time and place, call us toll free at 877-425-9993 or email us at TV at aboutpolygamy.com. We want you to know that we have made available to you some outstanding resources free of charge. You will find them at our website, www.whatloveisthis.tv. There you will find the DVD, Lifting the Veil of Polygamy, which documents the real-life stories told firsthand of those who were lifted out of the culture of polygamy through the power and love of Jesus Christ. 
Also, free of charge to you is the booklet, Is Polygamy Biblical? It explores plural marriage in the context of God's Word and answers questions like, Did God ever command polygamy? Is it part of God's plan? While you are at our website, make sure to take advantage of the archived episodes of this program, which can stream on demand directly to your computer. There are more than 100 shows to choose from. And if someone you know is unable to view this program via live broadcast, recommend that they visit this same website every Thursday at 8 p.m. Mountain Time to watch this show through live streaming video. Simply follow the links to the live streaming video page. If you are watching live tonight, we invite you to call us as we open our phone lines. The number is 801-973-TV20. That's 801-973-8820. Now, back to Polygamy, What Love Is This? with our host, Doris Hansen. Welcome back to our show. Uh, I'm Doris Hansen. This is Polygamy, What Love Is This? And uh, our telephone lines are open, 801-973-8820, if you'd like to call in and have questions or comments. We are interviewing uh, Dorothy Callan, who is characterizing uh, Orson Pratt's first wife, uh, Sarah Pratt, and the pain and the endurance that she went through um, going through um, false accusations and also a a polygamist husband. So we will continue on with the interview while we wait for the phone calls to come in. So we left off where you had left England Mm -hmm. uh, with a a dead child and your travels from England brought you to Salt Lake City. So what was your life? Was it any better in Utah? Not really. Because once we settled here and polygamy was practiced openly, Orson became the church spokesman for it. Mm-hmm. He gave a number of sermons on polygamy there, all recorded in the Journal of Discourses. Right. You can read them, they're still yeah, there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He'd never really gotten along with Brigham Young. And once we settled in Utah, Orson obeyed him exclusively. Uh, when things got too tense between them, Brigham would send him off on another mission, usually to England, although he went a number of other places. After one trip of about a year, he came back with another young wife, and I didn't even know about her until they oh, arrived home together. Wow. Another time, they were away, or Orson was away for 22 months, uh, almost, that's almost two years. And while he was gone, I gave birth to a daughter, and our oldest son and our oldest daughter were married. Orson came back with another with wife. With another wife. That brings him to seven plural wives. Yes, this one, though, was a little older. She was 28. The previous one had only been 16. Younger than our daughter, Celestia. Wow. So, yes, here was my husband, gray-headed, taking to his bed young girls in a mockery of marriage. Of course, there could be no joy for him in this intercourse except the indulgence of his fanaticism and of something else, perhaps, which I hesitate to mention. Now that's Sarah's own words from historical record. Your life had to be getting more and more unbearable at Mm -hmm. this point. Well, as I said before, Orson always obeyed Brigham's orders. And later in our marriage, after we separated, there was a dispute over my continuing to live in the house that Brigham had either sold us or given to us, depending on who you believe. And Brigham actually filed a lawsuit in order to force me out of the house. We do have a picture of that house. It was a lovely house. It was on West Temple across from the tabernacle. And Orson wrote a letter to the newspaper about it that contained statements so utterly false 
that they could only have proceeded from a man long subjected to the soul-enslaving influences hmm. of Brigham Young. Why would Orson do something that would purposefully cause mm -hmm. you so much harm? He was fanatically devoted to Mormonism. You see, he would sign any document that the president wished him to sign, regardless of its content. Indeed, cases had occurred, according to Orson's own confession to his family, in which the president has had his name signed to documents without the little formality of a consultation. If Orson actually knew of the contents of the letter, I can only regret that he's given to the public such a, a convincing example of his moral imbecility. Moral imbecility. Unfortunately, we find that too often in this religion. Did you ever come yourself, ever come to embrace the doctrine of plural marriage as having been a divine command from God, something that was pure and righteous as these polygamous men claimed it was? No, I, I was never truly converted to polygamy, although I lived it. In the beginning, I wanted to do what was right as a good Mormon, and I truly loved my husband. But polygamy is the direst curse which a people has ever been afflicted with. I could tell you stories enough to fill volumes of the vile workings, the unholy influences and horrible results. Polygamy demoralizes good men and makes bad men correspondingly worse. And first wives, well, God help them. Yes. First yes. wives, it renders desperate, heartbroken, mean-spirited mm -hmm. creatures. Mm -hmm. I, I once told a reporter from the New York Herald, I don't wish to wrongfully accuse my husband, although by that time we'd been hopelessly separated for 10 years. I believe when he decided to enter upon the practice of polygamy that he did so not from any violence of individual passion, but from sheer fanaticism. Mm. He took wife after wife until they numbered five. And for a long time, they were kept away from me and I was spared any intercourse with them. But by and by, he told me that he intended to put those five women on exact equality with me. And that he could spend one week with this one and one week with another one, and then I should have the sixth week. Patience forsook me. <laughs> I told him plainly that I wouldn't endure it, and that I said, if you take five weeks with your other women, you can take the sixth week with them also. Good for you. Well, Orson responded, if you don't choose to live with me, I don't know that I'm obliged to support you. You may have my permission to go to hell. Whoa. Stick to it or to starvation. That's when we separated, and I was so enraged, I lit a bonfire in the backyard and I burned most of his journals and letters and papers. <laughs> it's too bad. We would have had some good stuff to talk about on the show if you hadn't have burned them. How many wives did Orson Pratt end up taking? Well, eventually there were 10. ten and the 10th one, again, was only 16, and he was 57. Um, how on earth did he provide for 10 wives? He didn't. Orson really had never been a good provider, and the more wives he took, it only got worse. We were all poor. His constant labors abroad for the church, which he unfortunately believed was his duty to attend to, prevented him from attending to things at home the way he should have. He expected the Mormon God to do what he should have done mm. himself. Mm. Orson Pratt was not a bad man. 
He was as strictly honest as he could be with his firmly fixed, fanatical belief in Mormonism. He was as honest in his adherence to this terrible delusion, which I've said I have so much cause to regret. I am the wife of his youth, and he is the father of my and children. children. Yes, okay. yes. Well, we do have some calls coming in. We better take mm -hmm. these calls. We have um, line two, Don calling from Ogden. Hello, Don. Uh, good evening, Doris. Hello. Uh, You're on the air. Love your ministry. Thank you. <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, the secrecy has been really prevalent in tonight's program and then also throughout history to where, as uh, my particular knowledge, uh, of the original Doctrine and Covenants in the 100th section stated that there's man shall have but one wife and no concubines. This was in the first edition. Uh -huh, that's mm -hmm. true. And I'm curious, uh, I believe it was uh, after Joseph Smith's death that the 132nd section was found in his notes or whatever and then was added into the Doctrine and Covenants and the original 100th section was changed to something else. How long did these secret marriages go on before it was finally indoctrinated into the Doctrine of Covenants? Um, 1852 is when Orson gave his public speech in the tabernacle in Salt Lake City that made polygamy public. But once we left <coughs> Nauvoo, it was not a secret because those who did not espouse plural marriage stayed behind, and, and those who believed did. it came west and because the wives we had to in order to mm -hmm. practice polygamy safely. <clears throat> but it was made public in Orson's talk in 1852. 1852? Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And Joseph Smith, and, his first and, wife, and, was uh, early in the, 1830s. And then, as, when was it changed in the Doctrine of Covenants? What year was that? The same that year? Didn't, no, no, that didn't happen until it, in the 1870s, I yeah, believe. That was much later. Yeah, they didn't um, move it move the, the make the changes in the Doctrine and Covenant till then. So the majority of these marriages were done in secret as without uh, the knowledge of the, the wives or uh, even members of the church, I'm thinking. Well, after 1852 they weren't secret, but sometimes the man would get married, mm -hmm. like Orson's uh, married several women without telling Sarah first. That mm -hmm. happened quite a bit. And Joseph Smith died in what year? 44. 1844. Mm -hmm. With how many wives? 34. 34. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, hey, Doris, we sure love your ministry, and God bless you, and you thank keep you. up with it. Thank, thank, you. thank you very uh -huh. much. Yeah, thank you for, for calling. Good night. Okay, we have Dale calling from Boston, Massachusetts. Hello, Dale. Um, hello, Doris. Um, my question is related to the secrets, the secret activities and um, meetings that you guys refer to. How do you verify that those things existed if they were so secret? And why would they, why would they write them down if they were so secret? There were a lot of journals. Lots oh, and the lots, personal journals? lots of personal journals and letters, and there is no record of the actual uh, ceremonies that I could find. But there are lots of references to the endowment council and the second blessing and the greater blessings and the second anointing and the second, uh, you know, many many kind of code phrases for mm -hmm. those things. And there were, there and, it, and at no people did at, did at no time did these people not think that it was not right for the church to have secrets like this? Well, we want to tell everybody today that if any of you, if, if you're in a church that has secrets, you need to run because Jesus yeah. said no I secrets. Agree. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you for answering my question, and thank you for your ministry. Thank you. Um, Thanks I've learned a lot from watching these shows. If, if only for my own Christianity, and nothing to do with um, Mormonism. So well, thank, thank you, and continue with your good work. Appreciate your call. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks, bye. Okay, we have Grant calling from Lehigh. Hello, Grant. Yes. You're on the air. Doris, how are you? Thank you so much for taking my call. You're welcome. What's your question? Well, we've talked a little bit tonight um, about how after, um, you know, polygamy became in a lot of people apostatized and left the, ch- left the church. My question is, when Wilford Woodruff received the revelation to discontinue polygamy, how was that received? And, and kind of the people that had already taken into the practice of polygamy, what, what, what did they do? Did they keep practicing it? Or can you talk a little bit about how that whole process went? They kept practicing it. They didn't stop. Even the Mormon leadership didn't stop practicing polygamy. Uh, they just got kind of dug in a little more secretly. And that's when they started uh, going down to Mexico and and uh, having little um, communities down there. And they would uh, the um, leadership of the Mormon church actually continued to mm-hmm. take wives as well. It wasn't just the, the run-of-the-mill member. It was also the leadership. Um, they didn't really stop their marriages until 1904 uh, as a result of the Reed Smoot hearings. And then Joseph F. Smith said, well, we got to stop this stuff, you know. But even then, it was kind of a difficult thing for them to quit doing. I see. Well, thank you so much, Doris. Uh, again, I love the show. I tune in quite often, so I keep doing the great work that you're doing. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye. Okay, we've got just a little bit left here, and we've only got a couple of minutes of the show left, too. So do you want to, <laughs> do you have something that you need to, to say? Well, probably the closing? last The last thing I would say was that Orson was gone 41% of the time during our marriage, away on missions, and of the six children that, we, that I raised to adulthood, because he was never there to help raise them, uh, I resolved to rear them so that they would never espouse the Mormon faith. Good for you. While keeping secret from the church leaders and our neighbors that I was doing that. Mm -hmm. And of the six children who grew to adulthood, only one, Laren, pursued Mormonism. The rest uh, either were excommunicated or simply refused to be members of the church. Good for you. I'm glad that that I'm glad that happened. At least some of them free from that bondage. And Sarah Pratt died um, on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1888, she was 71 years old. She died in Salt Lake City. And the odd thing is, which you brought out, was that she, uh, or uh, Sarah Pratt, alone was buried with Orson Pratt, where a lot mm-hmm. of these polygamous men, all of their wives are buried with them. None of his polygamous wives were buried with them. Yes. We don't know why. Couldn't find out why. Uh, I don't know why. Don't know what happened Since to them. Since they were all younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we've presented uh, Sarah Pratt's story in a very condensed form. Um, thank you for all the hard work You're that welcome. you did to put this together. I really appreciate your participation and your authentic costume for this. <laughs> it's, thank you. It's, it's my pleasure. And it's very um, good. All of this information is documented 
and is taken from her, uh, Sarah's answers were taken from official documentation. And we just heard the sad story of one woman in early Mormon polygamy and the pain and the heartache and the unjust accusations that she suffered under the patriarchal polygamous system of early Mormonism. And she was just one of thousands of unnamed women who were forced to suffer at the hands of their extremist polygamist husband with the blessing of Mormon polygamous leadership. The same mistreatment continues today when polygamous women bow down under that burden, submitting to the heavy-handed abuse because they've been threatened with God's displeasure if they don't. If the women in polygamy would only take their Bibles and ask God for his guidance and understanding of his word, then and, and their hearts would truly seek the biblical truths, they would discover it is not the way to heaven or the way to God's heart. God has told us in 1 Corinthians 7, 2, that each man's to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. And what part of that verse is so difficult to understand? Ladies, that means no polygamy is allowed. Polygamy doesn't make you righteous. Only Jesus does that for you. He died on the cross for you. And the Bible tells us that if righteousness could be gained by works, then Jesus died in vain. And if you're trusting your polygamy for any kind of spiritual blessings, then Jesus did die for you in vain. He did your works for you on the cross. If more polygamous women today would find out what truly pleases God, polygamy would soon be relegated into the eternal and infernal garbage dump where it belongs. You know, God has no favorites. He doesn't expect women to suffer under the hands and bondage of the patriarchal system that the Mormon religion forces on females. Jesus alone is our mediator. He's our savior. Your husband isn't Polygamy isn't, your church isn't, Jesus is. Good night. This has been the audio podcast edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? This program is a production of A Shield and Refuge Ministry and Main Street Church of Brigham City. You can view current and past video episodes as well as download audio episodes of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance in leaving a polygamous situation, please contact us. We are here to help. All of our contact information can be found at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 877-425-9993. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our other programs, we'd love to hear from you. Write us at email at whatloveisthis.tv. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again.